anyone been on the Hawkesbury River? Um, so close to us. Surely, has anyone not been to the Hawkesbury River? Okay, this is good. I'd be sad otherwise. It's so close. And it's so beautiful. It's like blue-green water and it winds around these hills and you see the thick shrub and trees. Maybe not so good, but still fascinating is that when you peer under the surface, have you seen this like these brown giant jellyfish, these huge jellyfish swimming under the surface, all this life happening. Whenever I go on the river, and it's not very often, but when I go, um, my stepdad owns a boat, so that's really exciting. Um, it feels so relaxing. It feels like I've gone away on holidays, even though it's like not that far from here. Rivers have been described as being the veins of the planet. They course through our whole world. They bring fresh water to various ecosystems. They allow thousands of species to thrive, including us. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, there is a river. And that river goes out and it splits into four rivers, bringing life to the world. Rivers are the veins not only throughout the planet, but through our cities. Look at the major cities, look where human civilizations start, and it's often near a river. When the people of Israel went to the Promised Land, they had to cross the River Jordan, that marked the boundary into the Promised Land. Rivers are where we can get power from, we can get fresh water from, we can get food. They're full of life. Over this last month, we have been celebrating and looking at the fact that God cares about all of this world. That God cares even about the rivers of this world, and God cares about us, and God has called us to care for this world, care for the rivers of the world, and to care for one another. He's given us this incredible responsibility. And so we have ruled over the rivers. We have navigated on them. Sometimes we've changed the direction and flow, built dams and levies. We've relaxed on them, enjoyed them. Sometimes we've polluted them. Some of the great rivers now, um, the Colorado, the Indus, the Nile, the Murray-Darling, are not so great. That's sad when we do damage to rivers. But there's also hope. Ezekiel has this uh, incredible vision. You can read about it in Ezekiel 36. It speaks about this deep river bursting forth from the temple of God, going all the way down to the Dead Sea and transforming the Dead Sea to... Um, Fresh water where fish grow and multiply. And in this vision, there's all these trees that line the bank. They, they, they're called fruit trees, but they're not like any fruit tree I've ever seen before because it describes the leaves being used to heal the nations. This is the hope that we have as Christians of this vision of creation being renewed. That's what Jonathan reminded us of last week. In Revelation, picks up on Ezekiel, and you see uh, the river of life flowing through the city of God. And the fruit trees are named as the trees of life, looking back uh, to Genesis. God has a plan for rivers. So for those of us who love creation, maybe you've been excited by this series, and you're like, it's really good to know that God also loves creation. It's really good to know that creation has, um, is part of God's plan. But some of you might be like, well, actually, if I had to really confess, I hate rivers. Like they smell, there's mosquitoes there, and I'd much rather stay indoors. Like all this talk of nature, like it's even like it's okay looking at pictures of nature, but out in the real, like outdoors, it's like, yeah, like you sweat, I don't know, it's hot, and there's mosquitoes, it's like awful. I'd rather stay in, and I'm not I'm like, who cares really, whether God likes creation or not, I don't really care. Well, that's fair enough because we're all different. But as we think about, um, this is our last night thinking about um, reframing our understanding of creation. I want to maybe go back into more comfortable territory. For those of you who are maybe not convinced that God cares about all the creation, I thought we'd talk about people because 
hopefully we care about people. And I thought we'd end with Jesus, because Jesus is always a good place um, to spend. It's comfortable until you hang out with him a bit too much, and then it becomes uncomfortable. So we're looking at a pretty familiar passage, um, a familiar part of what Jesus says. But let's see if we can reframe it or think about it in a different way. So Jesus says, what's the most important thing that you can be doing with your life? He said, you should love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. So Jesus doesn't say, you all have to love rivers. And Jesus doesn't say, you all have to love leeches. Praise God. But Jesus does say, the most important thing you can do with your life is love. Love God and love others. So that's our mission statement as a church, just in case you didn't know, which is good, like we're on track. We're following Jesus, loving God, loving others. And Jonathan has been thinking through, well, what does it look like to love others? And he has this really helpful phrase when he says you should find out. So find out um, what others need and then you help out. About seven years ago, I went to a forum that Tier Australia ran on the environment. So about seven years ago, I thought maybe I should read more about this and, and discover what is a Christian perspective on the environment. So I didn't just read a book, I went to a little forum. And um, Tier Australia, if you know, they work with um, poor communities in really hard places in the world. So they're working in the area of poverty and aid and development. So at this one, they had all these like pictures of the different communities that they were working in. And they said, in our experience, as we've been working with these people, hearing their stories, a lot of these people are saying, we are seeing changes in the climate that's impacting uh, our communities negatively. And so Tier Australia, and in fact, a lot of Christian aid organisations became convicted that part of what it means to love your neighbour is to think about the space they live in. And so that's why a lot of Christian organisations have started talking more about the environment because they see it as part of the mandate for loving your neighbour. The environment is a really tricky thing. Climate change is a really tricky thing to talk about because it's um, a really big issue and it can be overwhelming and maybe a bit abstract. But let me give you kind of the big picture and then we'll go to a smaller <laughs> example. The World Health Organization says uh, if climate change happens, if there's, um, we should expect to see more extreme temperatures, so we're starting maybe to see that now, like heats, floods, droughts, all at more extreme levels, and temperature-sensitive diseases will begin to spread to different areas as the temperature changes, like especially like malaria and stuff like that will spread. And it also affects crops. Now, who does this affect, out of all the people in the world, um, climate change, who does it affect the most? It affects the most vulnerable. And so the World Health Organization says, and obviously this is from a health perspective, all populations will be affected by climate change, but some are more vulnerable than others. People living in small islands, developing states, and other coastal regions, megacities and mountains and polar regions are particularly vulnerable. Children, in particular children living in poor countries, are among the most vulnerable to the resulting health risks and will be exposed longer to the health consequences. The health effects are also expected to be more severe for elderly people and people with infirmities or pre-existing medical conditions. Areas with weak health infrastructure, mostly in developing countries, will be least able to cope without assistance to prepare and respond. 
that's pretty serious. That's a pretty sobering picture when you think, and once again, it's always most vulnerable, like children, elderly, people with diseases, people in um, countries that are always struggling, they're going to be impacted. Maybe sometimes it's so sober and overwhelming that we're like, oh, it's too big, I can't do anything about it, and, and it's so far away, so we kind of take a step back. So let me try and tell a smaller story about a river in our own country, the Murray-Darling. Who has been on the Murray-Darling? Has anyone visited the Murray-Darling? What do you have? Oh, guys, this is our country, you need to see it. And it's a beautiful river, very different to the Hawkesbury. It's like... This is my nice description of it. Creamy, yellow, brown river. Um, and it's very quiet when I was on it. So I went on a paddle steamer, and it wasn't winter, so there was no other tourists. It's just like my family on this paddle steamer. So it's very peaceful. If you like an introvert, really good. No other people there. Um, it's changed completely. Like back in the 1860s, the Murray Darling was booming with our wool trade. Um, they were having these paddle steamers going back between the states, transporting wool. Towns were thriving. Now there's a very different story. Now, a lot of towns, a lot of farms are struggling, and they're competing over water. There's not enough water, and there's this tension between upstream communities, like in New South Wales, and then it goes you know, all the way down to South Australia, and South Australia gets pretty annoyed at New South Wales because they think that New South Wales takes all the water, so by the time like, the river makes its way to South Australia, there's not much left. Um, you probably didn't hear, unless you're following Murray-Darling News, but um, in July, Four Corners broke a story saying, because the Murray-Darling people are trying to save it, so the government is trying to um, use taxpayers' money to try and save the river, and it was alleged that this money is actually, some of it is being used by big irrigators so they can get more water. So now, like, South Australia is even more upset because, like, this deal which taxpayers, <clears throat> ordinary people putting money into, is, like, still being used to help big business. And so there's an investigation going on in New South Wales currently. I don't know how many times we hear the stories. Um, Tony also mentioned it this morning. There's a lot of farmers um, doing it really tough in um, rural Australia. Like, there's been a massive drought for ages, and a lot of families are going under. And I think, um, yeah, we need to hear their stories more. So let me tell you one woman, as she says this. We feel like forgotten people. The government has done a deal with the corporates and left all of the family farms along the river out in the cold. Now, I've just picked the river as an example, but you could pick lots of instances where that would be the same case where it's really hard for farmers. But we don't live out in the country, so you might be thinking, well, that's sad, but it's so far removed. Jesus says the most important thing you can do with your life is love God and love your neighbour. So who is my neighbour? Do I have to care about people on the other side of the world? I mean, surely they're not my neighbour. I have no connection to them. Do I, do I have to care about farmers in the country? I mean, a little bit closer, but still, like, I don't live near the Murray Darling. Do I have to care about them? Who is my neighbour? Well, that's the question that people ask Jesus too. They're like, yeah, Jesus, so wise. We love that saying. Yes, we should love God, love others. But okay, let's just work out. Who are you talking about? So they asked Jesus, how do I know who my neighbor is? And he answered them by telling them a story. He said, imagine there was a man walking on the side of the road and he gets beaten up almost to death. He's left there dying. People just walk past. He's not my neighbor. I don't want to get involved. I'm busy. I've got things to do, people to care for. Too complicated. I don't want to get involved. The person who ends up stopping is someone from a different ethnic group. 
a Samaritan. The Samaritan stops someone who's not just from a different ethnic group, but someone who is kind of despised and mocked by Israel. He stops and helps an Israelite. He gets into the mess, like heaves the man onto his donkey and takes him to a place where he can find healing. And Jesus says, that's what I want you to be like. I want you to be like the Samaritan who goes out of his way into the mess to help somebody, uh, who even crosses ethnic boundaries, maybe even crosses like someone who's potentially an enemy, but still shows help. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not going to tell you, like, this is the people you should look after, this is the people you shouldn't. No, I want you to have a bigger idea of what it means to love your neighbour. I want you to reach out to the unreachable. And that's who Jesus celebrates. And I'm like, wow, that's really hard, Jesus. But why, why do we love like this? We love because that is exactly how God loves us. God reaches out into our messy lives. God shows love to us so much so that he sent his son to lay down his life for us so that our sins might be forgiven. And then God sends the spirit, not just so that we can be like, oh, it's so nice, God, that you're with us. And not just so we have maybe cool spiritual gifts. But the Holy Spirit is sent so that we might be empowered to live this way, that we might be able to love this way, that we don't have to do it by ourselves. Jesus says, love God, love your neighbour. It's the most important thing you need to do. And maybe you need to start seeing people that you might not think is your neighbour, but actually is. Like, okay, I got that. But what does it mean to love Jesus? I still, I, I don't really know what love, like love is. A, oh, we, love, we love that word. There's lots of songs about love. But what does it actually mean to love in a practical sense? Well, I'm going to give you one example of what love means. It means setting limits. We live in a society that doesn't like limits. Like, we want freedom. And we want to be able to do whatever we want. In fact, kind of the opposite to love, I think, is selfishness. And we don't want to say, like, no one wants to think that they're selfish. But really, we're kind of encouraged to be selfish, to do whatever you want, to collect as many resources as you want. Um, and we have less of a connection even to our next door neighbours. Like we're so mobile, we don't know the people next door. We're not encouraged to know people as neighbours. We are encouraged to be consumers. Like from the moment we are born and watching TV or can see stuff, there's ads all around and there's ads that train us. Bye, bye, bye. Find your identity and stuff. Collect as much stuff as you can. And as a society, we've kind of embraced this and we grab as many resources as we can, because we're kind of told there's endless growth, like, it's a possibility, we can just keep using resources, but we're also told, like, obviously not everyone gets these resources, so we've got to be quick, so there's like a fear competition, we've got to grab as many resources, but just keep using them because they're going to last forever as well. This is the society we live in. And to try and help us uh, visualise that, a group of scientists has created an ecological ecological footprint. So they're trying to look at what are all the resources that we use, fuel, timber, food, etc., and how much land do you need so that those resources can be renewed, so that we can keep on using them. So every year they release a footprint and they look at different countries. Um, up until 1970, we just needed one planet Earth and all the resources were replenished and then we could keep using them, we could keep fishing or using fuel or food, whatever. Since 1970, we're now up to, it takes one and a half planets, um, well, we need one and a half planets to be sustainably all the resources being renewed, which means we are overusing all the resources on this earth. 
And maybe we, we don't feel the effects of that yet because we live, like in the West, you can go to the taps and turn on fresh water and it just always comes out. And you can go to the shops, there's like rows and rows of food. It's like magic. It just got there. I don't know how it got there, who was involved. It's just there. And we think that's always going to be the case. But actually, um, they also have not only a footprint, they also have, um, they do it as a year, so they look at at what point are we like in debt, almost, if you think in that way. And it used to be just before the end of the year, we're four days um, in debt. Now we've reached August. So by August by this year, we are now like in debt, using more resources than what can be renewed. And it's not like this is equally all done. It's not like everybody is using, overusing resources. Some countries are worse than others, and Australia is particularly bad, at least this year. Uh, so if everybody lived as an Australian, we would need 5.2 planets, which is kind of confronting, because as I said, like, like surely not. Like, surely I'm not selfish. Surely I'm not taking more resources than other people. What does it mean to love my neighbour? Well, some people say... Jesus didn't care about the environment because he never spoke about it. Then that's true, Jesus didn't really speak about the environment. But Jesus was speaking in a very different context to ours. He was speaking in a world where there was around 200 million people. Today there's 7 billion people and rising. So there's different pressures on the world. And he's speaking in a society that uh, is formed by God. He's speaking to Israel at this point. Israel was a society that were slaves vulnerable people that God had brought out and had given them the promised land. And God gave them the promised land as a gift, but with that promised land came limits, like the law. All the bits that were like, oh, that's the boring bits in the Old Testament. There's all these laws that God gave the people, which gave them limits about how they were to live as a society, which is kind of the opposite to us, which is like, we hate limits. God's like, no, no, these are all the limits. Now, part of the limits, I think are really good. So firstly, everyone gets a piece of land. Every family gets a piece of land. It's not like it's all even, like you get the same amount of land, but everyone gets land, and then you have to grow your own vegetables, raise your own animals, be self-sufficient. So most of Israel would have been small-scale farmers. There's laws about how much land you can acquire, so you can't like grab all the little pieces of poor people's land and then get more land. There's a, um, a limit to how much land you can acquire. And if you get poor, like you can still get poor, you could, have, you could be a really bad farmer, and you end up in poverty or bad crops. Um, there's laws to try and help you out of poverty. So there's all these laws which show there's this deep connection for Israel between God, land, and people. So God gave the people the land. So this is my gift, but if you want to stay in this land, you need to live a certain way. You need to obey my law. You need to abide by these limits. So every year, you might remember we've looked at the festivals. They have all these festivals all the time. They're celebrating the end of harvest, beginning of harvest, end of harvest, beginning of harvest, because they're conscious that they need God to bless them so that they can flourish. God says, I will bless you if you look after the land and look after one another. Follow my laws. And some of the laws, uh, apart from this rhythm of giving thanks, it's all about rest as well. It's not all about work, 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 work and consuming all the resources. It's about taking a break. So every seventh day they had the Sabbath and that was for the slave to rest and the foreigner to rest and the animals to rest and the land to rest. And then one of my favorite chapters in Leviticus is chapter 25, which says this, verse 4. 
But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to Yahweh. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary resident who lives among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. So every seventh year, no one was to do any major work. Now to let the land rest, and then in the 50th year, the Jubilee year, all land was to revert back to its original owners which is a really radical notion, and I'm not sure if Israel ever actually did that, but that's what God told them to do. That's the type of society God wanted. And you see in these laws um, a worldview embedded in, into them. You see that God cares more about people than profit, and that God is more interested in not just like a few having all the resources and then you know everyone else missing out, but everyone having the opportunity to flourish. That's why God is really critical of kings when the idea of kingship comes in, because he's like, I can see what's going to happen. You're going to have this hierarchy where the king gets all the wealth and the poor. Uh, there's going to be this big gap of poverty. And they're like, no, no, we want that. And that's what happens. So in God's vision, everyone should have the opportunity to flourish. So when Jesus says, you should love God and love your neighbor, he's talking to a scribe of the law. He's talking to an Israelite. And he's saying, if you want to understand the Old Testament, all the law, all the prophets, this is what it boils down to. Love your neighbor and love God. And in the laws, you see so many practical examples. It's like getting your neighbor's donkey out of the ditch. Or it's leaving grain, um, don't pluck it all up so that poor people can come and gather it. Or it's um, making sure your scales are honest so you're not cheating people. Or it's caring for the land so that your children can have it in the future. There's all these practical examples. And Jesus is calling people to that. But even going beyond that, because he's like, this is the law, but I want you to do it out of the grace that you've received. Obviously, you might not be looking after donkeys anymore, so that law might not be applicable, but how do you love your neighbor? Because that's what the law was trying to reflect in that particular society. What does it look like to love your neighbor and care for them? It's such a different worldview to the worldview that we live in. Jesus told another parable when he was speaking about a man who has a big crop. And the man thinks to himself, I will buy or build a better barn. And then God says, you fool, this night you're going to die. It's kind of a strange parable because, I mean, why is he a fool? Isn't that a sensible thing? You get a lot of crop, like you build a bigger barn. That's how we work. But in Jesus' context, there's two weird things about this story, which are probably not weird for us. Firstly, in the story, the man thinks about himself, like he talks to himself. He's like, I hello myself. What should I do? I should build a barn. Like that was so weird in Israel society because they didn't have this um, same sense of individualism that we do. Like, of course, we always talk to ourselves now. And the second thing that's weird about the story is that there's no neighbors mentioned. He has this great crop, and he doesn't share it with his neighbors. He doesn't celebrate. Come over to my place. You've had this um, big crop. Come celebrate with me. He's just thinking about himself, which again, in our society, like, well. That's probably what we do. Like, who invites other people over? Like, you keep your profit, put it in your savings, whatever. In Jesus' day, you would think more about neighbors and, and celebrating. So, we live in very different worlds. What worldview is right? And how does it work in our society? Because I have this trouble, whenever I have a debate, I can hear both sides of the argument. 
And so when I look at the world today, and especially us, like living where we are, we have benefited so much from our economic system, right? The middle class is so good. We have out of poverty. None of us are farmers struggling, which is like, praise God, I would make a terrible farmer. So it's good that there's less people in extreme poverty. Like even right around the world, there's less people in extreme poverty. Um, there's a lot of good in a lot of our economic practices. We get to study. We might not always like studying, but to have the luxury to be able to study, it might not always feel like a luxury, is a luxury that we can think, that we can choose what jobs we want to do, that we can use our gifts, like praise God, that's a really good thing. That we have beautiful houses, that we have fresh water, which you kind of just take for granted, is a really good thing. That we have food is a good thing. That we have holidays and can go out on the river and just relax. These are all really good things that are part of our economic system. So there's a lot of good stuff in our economic system. And yet, and yet it's not perfect, and yet there's this tension in reducing people, and this economic, economic system tends to do this, reducing people to just being consumers rather than neighbours. What does it mean for people to be seen as neighbours? If we only ever think about ourselves, what we should expect then is conflict. And in the world there's a lot of conflict over resources. And our natural instinct is like to grab as many resources and then like protect them. But that's what happens. We have wars, we have people on the move, we have refugees, because we're all fighting over these less and less resources. The US released a military, so it's, um, it's biased towards the US military, documentary earlier this year, talking about climate change as a national security issue. And they said, yeah, we should expect more conflict and more refugees and we need to be prepared. In South, um, Central Asia, there is a river that goes through four different countries. They have the same problem as Australia, except slightly more severe. Um, the upstream communities take most of the water, and the downstream communities miss out. And so this is what happens. During the summertime, there are daily conflicts over irrigation water. They're usually between villages, sometimes inter-ethnic, and people have killed each other over irrigation water. It's crazy. You're like, where's Central Asia? I don't even know where Central Asia is. It's like all the Stan countries. Um, it seems so remote. But this is why we should care about um, people in another part of the world, because of globalization. You've heard of globalization, right? But like, they talk about it a lot at school. We're all connected in the end. Those farms in Central Asia, do you know what the upstream communities, what they're growing? Cotton. Do you know who they're growing cotton for? The West, for our clothes. And so even though it seems so far away, um, in order to make resources for us to use, it's happening in uh, Central Asia, and then people are fighting over water, and so somehow we are linked in as well. But we don't see it. I mean, we don't even know about Central Asia. We don't even know about the conflict. All we see is the ads saying, buy fashion, and, and particularly, I think probably for girls, the fashion season is shorter every year. They're trying to have more fashion seasons because they want you to buy more clothes, and we don't keep clothes as long as we used to since 2000 there's been an increase of the amount of clothes we use by 60% and we keep them for half as long. So we're just grabbing more resources for ourselves. What does it mean to love your neighbor? I think it means to set limits. And this is something, um, I guess, personally to think through. And I'll give you a moment to do it on your um, blue sheet in a moment. What does it look like to set limits? Are there ways that I can simplify my lifestyle? Are there ways that I can waste less food, or not buy as many clothes, or not buy the latest mobile phone or technology and update it all the time. Are there ways, it's like going back to that old-fashioned word of reusing or repairing stuff. 
How can I live counter to like this pressure from our society, which is just to buy, buy, buy? How can I have less and be okay? Because it's hard because things are often a status. So can I live with less and be okay with that? And actually see that that could be an act of worship, that part of loving God and loving others, and it's a very simple, ordinary thing, is not to buy as much, or to be more generous to those in need, or to use more renewable energy, or to think about that type of stuff, and thinking about how our actions can impact others. That's the first challenge. What personal ways can we maybe live more simply? The second one is, of course, I don't think we can do this by ourselves. And this is the great thing about the church, which Jesus pictured, the body of Christ, is that we need one another. And that the church has this powerful opportunity um, as we start to live a different way to our culture, to also call on governments and businesses. And in fact, for those of you who are good at law or businesses, like actually in your workplaces, to be advocating for good policies, that we have policies and laws that care for people right around the world. And that if you're involved in that or can be involved in that, that we champion that, that we call on uh, our nation. And there's been some fantastic work done around um, fashion, actually calling on um, companies to be more transparent about their supply chain. If we can actually make a difference. I think God calls us to be like a river. And that's what the blue paper is supposed to remind you of, that we can be a river that runs right across this world, offering love, grace, and justice. There's kind of two worldviews competing here. We can be people who just see others as consumers or competitors, where there's winners and losers. Or, and I think Jesus says ultimately this is where the good life is found. We see that every single person on this earth is made in the image of God. And that we have a responsibility as much as we can to be a good neighbour. And that looks like being just, that looks like being generous, that looks like being loving. And sometimes that's in the ordinary things of just limiting how much we use. So that we might be a blessing to others.